0: Thank you, Father. Thank you, God. A professor of uh, theological ethics opened his class uh, for the semester by reading a letter from a parent addressed to a government, a government official. In that letter, the parent complained that his son, who had received a good education, gone to all the elite right schools was headed for a good job as a lawyer had gotten involved with a weird religious sect the father continued that it seems as though the members it seemed as though the members of this sect controlled his every move telling him whom to date and whom not to date and relationships and then taking basically all his money and giving it to everybody else and the parent pleaded With the government official to do something about this strange religious group. And then of course the professor asked the students who is this letter describing. And of course the debate went on for a few minutes. And they were discussing about some of these walled off cults that were around. And... It's in my mind fresh because I teach uh, at SAGU. That's one of the classes I'm teaching right now is on cults. And, you know, the Branch Ravidians, if you all remember, just around the corner here in Waco and everything else, you know. And we were talking about Jonestown. It was a little before my time, but I remembered all the things about it and how, what, 900 people were poisoned, I think? Over 900 or whatever, totally brainwashed. And so they were talking about all this, and they were talking about this one group where they would join on a spaceship, on a spaceship, and... That's the tail end of Haley's comic. I don't know if you remember that one. I remember that one. Anyway, the professor, at the end of 15 minutes of going back and forth, the professor revealed, he said, hey, the truth is this. This is a letter written by a Roman in the 3rd century concerned about his son who became a Christian. I thought that was really interesting. 3rd century. We're coming up. Uh, this morning, I'm kind of sharing part three of this three-part series. And if you haven't had a chance or missed any of them, I encourage you to go in there. BJ normally puts it up by in a couple of days, Monday or Tuesday. He has it on there. So uh, if you have missed any of them, uh, go there. Because we started with the whole idea about working out our salvation. I'm going to go real quick through this because... Uh, Where salvation is all God, and Paul says, where salvation is all God, Paul says and encourages us to continue, continue to work out your salvation, work out your salvation that God works in you. Again, I've said this all along, and I've said this, we are not working for our salvation, not at all. We can never earn or work our way to win God's approval or anything of that sort, but he says, work out what you have been given, this gift of salvation, Work it out as God works in you. And he continues to say this. And how do we do this? We do this with fear and trembling. It's not because we're terrified about losing our salvation. That's not the point there at all. But just summarizing the whole thing, he says, hey, the salvation, you have to be serious about this. You have to be serious about this. I was telling someone just this past week that being an authentic Christian isn't about picking and choosing which parts of the Bible you are got to follow and obey Christ only when it's convenient. It's about being all in in your commitment to follow Christ. That's what he's talking about. You've got this. Now work it out as God helps you, empowers you to work in you. And again... We, we basically broke it down into the knowing God part and the loving God being two sides of the same coin where you have the first part of knowing God is what we talked about last week as the ultimate, our ultimate responsibility, knowing God, pursuing a knowledge of God. That's our responsibility. And the other side of the coin today is that now that you know God, now it's about loving God, where loving God becomes the only our only response or you can say our right response the only right response our number one responsibility is to know him and our only and the only right response is loving him turn with me to Matthew chapter 22 it's a familiar very familiar story where Jesus talks about this in uh, chapter 2 and we're going to read from verse 34 through 40 and I encourage you to keep Uh, your finger in that uh, section there, and we'll go uh, a little from there too. Verse 34, I'm reading from the NIV. It said, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, verse 35, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. For all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Uh, The parallel to this is in Mark chapter 12 and we'll look at it briefly because there's just a couple of differences in there. But we know this familiar story about the greatest commandment and someone said that love may not make the world go around but it sure makes the trip worthwhile. It is the best of all experiences and the sweetest of all emotions. This is love. I know we're coming up on Valentine's Day pretty soon. Whatever, But whatever century or whatever part of the world or whatever age as such, you will find that almost all, all the people will have to agree that love is one of the greatest or is the greatest of all the emotions around. Because if you honestly collected all the songs through the years, all the songs and the poems and the stories and the plays or the movies and you have to stack them all up I can almost guarantee you that the love part of it is probably outweighs all the other storylines and most of us have to agree with this that love is easily the the greatest experience of all and I think God would agree with that too because God himself is love and like I said this week People are going to be celebrating love on Valentine's Day, but we know that there's a difference in the world's definition of love and what and how God defines love it's itself. Because our text we just read and what we're looking at today does not talk about love as just a strong emotion or a feeling. It's talking about it being a command. And the truth is, it's not really human love that he's kind of talking about here. He's talking about a divine kind of love that only God can produce in us. And as we get into this passage, you, it's actually a really rich, the whole section is really rich. Because you've got to read, uh, understand the context in which it says. Because this is actually, uh, if you look at the life of Jesus, this is the Wednesday of the Passion Week. It's the Wednesday of the Passion Week. Monday, of course, is the day with Jesus, the triumphant entry. Okay, Jesus is coming in. They have, everybody's excited and they hail him as king and they want to make him king. And then, of course, he goes back and then he comes back on Tuesday and people are excited. You know, this is the king. And, but Jesus does something strange. Instead of going in and like going and taking on the Romans, who, what does he do? He goes to the temple and takes on the religious leaders and everything else that they've held dear to. Instead of attacking the Romans, he attacks their false religious temp- uh, means Teaching basically cleanses the temples, throws these t- tables over, and basically throws away, takes away all the money that they've made of. Right? That was Tuesday, and now he goes back and he spends the night. The Bible tells us in uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, their house in Bethany, and then he comes back now on Wednesday. And of course, people are like, "Okay, now what's he going to do?" Because they're excited, sort of. You know, he's doing something. So he comes back here and you see that he goes back to the temple, but now he's not throwing things around. Now he's teaching and he's, he's preaching about the, the gospel, the kingdom of God as such. But we know while all this is going on, the religious leaders, they've, they've kind of had it with him. They've reached their limit as such when it comes to tolerating Jesus and this teacher from Nazareth. And you can tell that their hatred for him is kind of at its climax right now. This is Wednesday. In two days, they've convinced everybody to turn their backs on him. This is it. And so there's, they're looking, if you, I, was, I was laughing because in my mind I was looking at it like if you had those, those gauges you have, you know, those meters you have, this green and then goes red. But their hatred for Jesus has gotten like, it's broken that thing by now. That's how mad they are at Jesus already looking for a way to just destroy him, to to kill him, to, you know, just get rid of him. And why are they so mad with him? And you notice because he's teaching them something different from what he's teaching the people, something different from what they have been taught, teaching the people, you know, because that's how they used to control them. So he's teaching them something opposite and he's kind of liberating them and they don't like that part. And of course, Jesus now had this big, grand welcome into Jerusalem. So it's obvious that his followers... The people following Jesus is so much more than the people that used to follow them, right? And that doesn't do good for their egos at all. And of course, the third thing that they kind of get upset about is that Jesus is demonstrating things and miracles and everything else that they cannot even come close to match. And so they're mad with him at this point of time. And so they do what they can only, the only thing they can do. They're mad with him because they, he, he contradicted their teachings, basically. He gained a greater following than they did. And he, they, he performed miracles that they could never, never do. And so they are stuck with this dilemma, how to get rid of the most popular man in town right now. Because that's what it is. How do you get rid of him? And so they attempt, the only thing they can attempt, their strategy is to publicly discredit Jesus. That's what they want to do, basically discredit him and they try to make him look bad in the eyes of the Romans and look bad in his own people Israel you know and so that's the idea and now Jesus just makes it kind of worse for them because he's come in and he's destroyed everything that was in the temple basically all that they were doing kind of adding insult to injury, basically. And now if you read in in chapter 21 and chapter 22, it's kind of really, he's getting at them because he uses parables in 21 and 22, three parables where he, he says that, you know, all these other people, the tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes are going to make it to heaven and you are not going to make it there. And so they're getting even more mad. And actually, if you look at 21, chapter 21, verse 45, it says, Uh, Chapter 21, verse 45. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. So now they're mad. Really mad. You know, he's come and destroyed, taken out. Because that's how they made the money, bribing and misusing people. He's got rid of that. And now he's attacking them straight, head on. And they don't like it because now they knew who he was talking about. So they come up with their own ideas. And in chapter uh, 22, you see that they try to trick him. The whole idea here is to turn the tide in their favor, that they won't see Jesus the way he is. And so the first time round, in verse 15, it says, uh, chapter 22, verse 15, the, then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. Just lays it out right there. That's what they were trying to do. So what did they do in 16? They sent their disciples to him. They didn't go themselves. They sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. And of course, we know the question right there the question they ask him is it right to pay taxes for caesar you know i mean pay taxes to rome and the idea there is a true teacher will say no allegiance to rome all allegiance to god you know and so they're trying to do what trying to trap jesus into saying something bad against the romans cuz then they 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 send the Herodians, they don't have to go say anything, they send the Herodians to the people and say, hey, this is Jesus, He's, he's the latest rebel, starting a revolution, and so then the Romans would take care of them, right? That's their idea, but we know what Jesus does. Jesus answers them, and they just, it says in verse 22, when they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. So first attempt to get a political statement fails. So what do they do next? Who should we pay taxes to? And he says, well... You know whose picture? Give, uh, give it to him. So second time round now. Now the second time it's the Sadducees who come. And if you read it, that is probably the most ridiculous question ever. They're never going to ask the question that they asked about the guy who dies and he has seven brothers and the wife marries all seven brothers and they all die. And the question is, then she dies and what's going to happen? That is the most ridiculous question ever to ask. But what they're trying to do is they try to discredit him in front of the Romans. All they're trying to say is, hey, if he's this great teacher, he should have an answer. But, you know, this is such a, uh, sorry, stupid question, basically. And Jesus probably won't have an answer because nobody has an answer to this. And then, okay, so if he's all this great teacher, he should have an answer. He doesn't have an answer. So what's the point of following him? And so that's where they're going with this. They're trying to test him again. And, of course, he gives them an answer that blows them away again. And keeps them basically just, they can't do anything. Verse 33, after that whole idea of the resurrection and he talks about all that. And verse 33, you see the response. When the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So they're not getting a political statement from him. They're not getting any theological controversy or anything of that sort from him resurrection whether it was real or not and then you come to this passage here which is really really neat here he talks about the greatest command in verse 34 let's pick it up now verse 34 hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees the Pharisees got together now you know that they didn't get along really well the Pharisees and the Sadducees Sadducees basically held on to the the law the five books and the Pharisees had a lot of other stuff to go with those five books basically And it's kind of interesting. The word silence, I was looking up there. The word silence is basically a gag. You know, when you gag, you put someone, not just throwing up, but you put a gag order on someone. It's the same word he used when the demon came and he told the demon to shut up in in chapter one, actually, in Mark. Same exact word. Hey, it's the same word he used when the winds and the waves got up. He stood up and said, hey, silence. That's what's happening here. And so he's kind of like, these guys, like, can't say anything else they just shut up and so the Pharisees should be a little excited about it because you know finally someone's got to shut these Sadducees up but Jesus is a a greater threat than the Sadducees and so they come they're stepping it up you see what happens in verse 35 one of them an expert an expert in the law tested him with this question so first they send the people you know the disciples of the Herodians then the Sadducees come, and now they got to step up their game, right? So it says, an expert of the law. Another translation says lawyer. Lawyer, basically expert of the law. He comes there, and he, he comes in verse uh, 35. Verse 35, it says, one of them, an expert of the law, came and tested him with this question. Verse 36, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? you got to realize the parallel to this uh, Is found in Mark chapter 12. And Mark chapter 12 kind of gives us a little insight into who this person was. And you kind of see in Mark chapter 12 that while this guy had the intention of trapping Jesus, you see that there is some kind of inquisitive uh, curiosity of what Jesus has to say, actually. Actually, turn with me to Mark chapter 12. May as well look at it. Mark chapter 12. And I didn't put my marker in there, so... Thank God for large letter versions of the Bible. <laughs> I had to get one last year. I broke down. So verse in chapter 12, verse 28. It says, one of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. And see this part here. It kind of gives you a little insight. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer. So there's something about him that tells, even though his intention was to swing the attitude of the people towards Jesus I mean away from Jesus towards them you see that there is some kind of some kind of curiosity in there because if you see his answer in Mark chapter 12 you see what Jesus does at the end he almost compliments him there because he says in verse 32 in 12 he says well said teacher he's complimenting Jesus he came here to trick him but he's saying well said teacher You know, it said, love God and everything else. And verse 34, it says, when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And then, of course, the last part is amazing. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. So kind of a brief insight. Yeah, he is inquisitive, but he has one purpose there. To trip Jesus up, test Jesus. And how do they do it? Not a political statement, no theological discussion. They do one thing that will definitely discredit him. They're going to Moses now. Let's go to Moses, and if you know anything about the Jews, and we all know, next to Abraham, who was the father of the nation, their father, it was Moses. Moses was the one with the most authority, because he's the one who led them out of Egypt. He's the one who gave them the Ten Commandments. He's the one who gave them all the laws, the first five books. That's Moses right there. And if you read in, verse, uh, in chapter 23, if you keep reading, it talks about the first couple of uh, verses. He talks about the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Talking about authority. Everybody considered Moses as the authority. And so what are they trying to do? If Jesus can say something bad about Moses, that's it. We've got him now. That's what they're trying to get to, you know. Okay, So he says, okay, these people are here. Now God tell us, Moses... We know about Moses. Now tell us which is the greatest commandment of them all. Waiting for him to say something that contradicts even a little the law that Moses gave them. And then they'd say, hey, here's your blasphemer. You know, here's whatever they wanted to do. Make him unpopular again. And of course, you see how they come to him, teacher and master. Totally, that's flattery. There wasn't any respect there really in calling him that. We know that already. Which is the greatest commandment of the law? And it's kind of... It's kind of funny because, if I'm not mistaken, uh, the Pharisees had almost 613 laws, you know, that they had to follow. Because uh, 613 words in the Ten Commandments, so each, each word had its own law, basically. And so something of like that, 613, 615, somewhere around there, my old, old Testament, whatever. But that's what they were looking for. And he says, okay, now which is the greatest of them all? And then, of course, verse 37, with no hesitation, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And of course, Mark adds strength there too. That's the first and the greatest command. And you're like, they're looking to discredit, I mean, looking for him to say something against Moses. And what does he do? He throws it back at them right in their face. This is what Moses told you to do in Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Deuteronomy 6 of course he quoted Moses saying and if you know Deuteronomy 6 is the number one it's called the Shema the Shema what he says love the Lord I mean he says hero Israel the Lord your God is one yes. and then the very next verse it says and love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your mind and with all your strength that's what he says right there he doesn't say Jesus is conscious constantly conscious of them trying to set up You know, trying to make him fall or trap him and say something about Moses. That's why he says earlier, and we did this in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I didn't come to, you know, change the law, destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. He's conscious of that thing. And what does he do? Pushes it straight back on their shoulders. He says, here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one God. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Reminds them of something they already knew. If you know anything about Jews, they have, what is it called, the mezuzah that they put on their, the box they put on their doorpost in their house. They wear the, what's it called, that they wear on the shoulders, on the box, on the, the Orthodox Jews, they wear that box on their foreheads. You know, and any, any Jew, typically, I think it's twice or thrice a day, they've got to recite the same thing, the Shema. And that's what they did. And he says, yes, that's it. It's something. It's the same thing. That is the great this law. And actually, it's kind of interesting. The word, the love that we are focusing on, the word in the Hebrew, it refers to a love of the will. Love the Lord. It's a love of the will, a love of the mind, a love of action rather than just a feeling or emotion. It was never supposed to be a feeling when you love God. It was supposed to be an act of our mind a choice you make an action that's followed up the highest kind of love not love that you kind of fall in and fall out of like people do today but a love that is that is uh, marked with dedication and commitment a love that is right and that is noble yeah, not just a feeling same thing, and the Greek word for that we, that he uses here is, of course, agapao, which we know is more, more love to do with intelligence and, and purposeful in its love, rather than just you know phileo, which is more just relational, and eros, which is more erotic kind of love. It's the highest kind of love that he's talking about, and what we say, the different ones that I found, a love of purpose, a love of will, a pure kind of love, a self-sacrificing kind of love, a love that is right, a love that is worthy. That's the love that is supposed to be our response to what Jesus has done on the cross. The greatest command as Christians, our responsibility is to know God. And our only response is to love God with everything within us. Love God. The highest kind of love. The Lord your God is one, he says there. And of course, now you have the knowledge that you, this God is one God. You know who your God is. And 6 5 in Deuteronomy says, now love God. You know who he is. He's the one above. That word, echad, is used nowhere else. And I, did a, I, I was trying to do some research on this, and the paper went so long, I quit. It was so beautiful in terms, there's no way to really, He talks about his sovereignty. He talks about there's one among a hundred. and then he talks about just one, that's it. there's nothing else. And now you have this knowledge of God, Israel, hero, Israel, your Lord, your God is one. He's in control. and now love him with all your heart, your soul and your might. Heart, and we know heart, basically, let's unpack that a little, the heart not what we talk about today but the hebrew understanding it's the it's your core, the core the whole identity of person is revealed and you know out of his heart the person speaks that's his identity everything within him is intellect his intelli- intelligence his thoughts his you know everything within that that produces actions love the lord with all your heart the word soul, of course, is uh, used when you see it used in the Old Testament. It goes with the emotions where Jesus himself says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. So it has an emotional aspect to it too. And then, of course, he says in verse uh, here in Matthew, he says, with all your mind. Of course, in, Ma- in Deuteronomy, he says might. Here it says mind. And it's, it's, Jesus didn't misquote the Old Testament. He knew exactly what he was doing. Because the idea here of mind is, you know, when you put your mind to it, you will do it. That's the idea here. It's you with that perseverance, with that determination. Love God like that. Yes, amen. And Then, of course, Mark acts strength there. That's the physical aspect that he adds to it there. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. All your strength. Intelligent love. Feeling, emotional love, intentional love, and a serving love that comes with your physical being. It addresses the love we ought to have and respond to. Like I said, it has this intellectual part. It has the emotional part. It has this intentionality, deliberate part. And it has a physical part where we serve God. And as we serve Him, we show that we love Him. Love the Lord your God with everything. Everything within you. That is the only response we have for God. That is our only right response for God. Think about it. Because all the way from the beginning of time to today. God is not looking for people who go through religious rituals. He's looking for people who will love him. Love him. Because on the outside you can go through all the emotions. But. If you have no love for him, you're really not living for him. Love him. Think about it. When God loved us, he he did not hold anything back. He gave us everything in his son. Why would he expect a half-hearted love back to him? If he didn't spare us his son, why should we hold back from loving God with everything within us? That's the love that God wants when we love him. Greater love has no man seen that a man lays down his life for his friends. Why can't we lay down our own selves? I'm talking about our egos, our pride, I inside to someone who really loves us. That's the response he's talking to. And realize this, it's God loved us before we even responded to his love. He still loved us. His love was not conditional as such, you know. He loved us. He encourages us to love God, not for what we gain, but because it is the right thing to do and our right response to the love he has shown us. Let me say something here that I know some people think differently on. God wants more than just believing, us believing in his son. Because we know what James says, even devils believe and tremble the demons. If believing was all it took to be saved, all the devil, the demons would be saved. There's a difference. They believe, but they don't love. Love, our response in love is a characteristic of those who are saved. That's the difference. The redeemed know how to love God, not just know God. We love him with everything within us. Love him with our heart. Again, it says what? Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Love the Lord, your God. Know him and love him. Know him and love him. If you read chapter 23, it's kind of just, he talks about this love. And then in chapter 23, if you see how he gets at the religious leaders, he talks to them and he says, he says, in, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he calls them what? Chapter 23, verse 13, hypocrites. Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites 25 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites 27 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites 29 woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites what is a hypocrite someone who says something and does something different a hypocrite according to what we read just now is a person who knows God but does not love God with all his heart his soul his mind and his strength Amen. that is our world response I don't want to be a hypocrite. Authentic love for God is the main distinguishing feature from us than those who know him. Yes, amen. And those who know him. Read throughout the Old Testament and you see what he talks about time and time again. Love me and keep my commandments. How do we love God? By keeping his commandments. Deuteronomy 7, it says, Know therefore the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful one who keeps his covenant and mercy with them who love him and keep his commandments. Nehemiah, it says, the Lord of God of heaven. You know, he's awe-inspiring God who keeps his covenant and mercy for them who love him and observe his commandments. There is never a time in the Old Testament or a place where God taught us only to do the external things. If you always talk about loving God, loving God goes hand in hand with obeying his commandments. Obeying his commandments. Jesus himself says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. This isn't something new. It wasn't something new that these people had heard. But that's exactly what was wrong with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders. They knew God, but they did not love him and he called them a hypocrite. God calls us to love him, and obedience is part of that. Yes. If we love him, we will obey him. Is he worthy of our love, though? How can you refuse the love of someone who lays it all down for you? Amen. I don't know. You can, I mean, everybody's got to answer for that for themselves. How can you resist the one whose, whose love is Perfect. It's not conditioned on how you behave. It's not conditioned on, you know, whether if you're good, i love you. If you're bad, I'm not. I'm just going to throw you away. How can you not love something who gave it all for you? For me, as I reflect, I see he is worthy of my love. He's worthy of my love. The truth is this. We are not... And the second part, let me just go through. We're not taught to love others as much as it comes naturally to love ourselves. It's natural. You don't have to teach a kid how to love himself. But you've got to teach him how to love others. And that's the second part of the same thing that goes here. God is talking about loving him more than anything else. Loving him. Loving him with everything within us. Let me go quick here. What kind of love is this? It's a love that meditates on the glory of God in Psalms 18. It's a love that trusts in God's power in Psalms 31. It's a love that seeks fellowship with him, Psalm 63. It's a love that is secure and is peace brings peace to our soul in Psalm 119. It's a love that is sensitive to how God feels and how God sees things. It's a love that loves what God loves. It's a love that loves whom God loves. It's a love that grieves over sin. It's a love that rejects the ways of the world. It's a love that longs to follow Christ, like he tells Paul tells Timothy. That's the kind of love. Always remember, love has to be in obedience. Love has to be tied up with obedience. Yes, if you are a Christian, a real authentic Christian, you will. Love God. You will love God. And this next part says, love your neighbor as yourself. You will learn to love God even though your love for him is imperfect. You still, even though you make your mistakes, your love for God will not not die down. We're never going to be perfect on this side of eternity. But we can never let our love grow cold. David. I mean, he messed up in like a hundred million ways. But why was he called a man after God's own heart? Because I think he knew the secret of what it meant to love God. Love God. That is our only response. Love God for who he is, not just for what we can get from him. Verse 38, 39, like I said, it's just the loving, loving our neighbor's as ourselves. The whole idea here is if we or do we really care? When our needs, when we have a need, we want our need to be met. But do we care about others that their needs are met too? That's it. It's just looking for beyond just ourselves. Again, as we love God more, we will learn to love others more. If we have not learned to love others, I would question the love for God itself because I don't think we've understood it totally. Know Him. Know Him. And love Him. I like that part where Jesus and Mark tells this guy, this young, uh, or this lawyer, I guess, this expert of the law, he says, hey, you answered right. You're not far from the kingdom. The last step he had to take, he had the knowledge. The last step was to fall in love with Christ. Yes, amen. Love Him. Love him. I'll end with the story in Ripley's. It's kind of interesting right at the end. It says, after this, they could not ask him any other questions because this was it. He punched them right in their face. (laughs) Ripley's, believe it or not, says the longest love letter was written in 1875. It's a person who wrote, I love you 1,875,000 times. 1875, and he was not a... Fool, he hired a secretary to do it, by the way. <laughs> but, but he didn't just tell her, go write it so many times. He dictated it to her every single time. But, you know, that's a great expression of love. But that's not what God is looking for. He's looking for us to love him with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. That is our only response. Bow your heads with me. Writing, (laughs) I was just laughing when I read that, writing, I love you. And you can say that to God and write that to God a million times, but if you don't obey, If you don't obey what he says, that love is really not real. If you love me, obey my commands. Throughout the Old Testament, and I just picked, I wrote 17 pages here and I tried to cut it down all to 10. So many Old Testament scriptures. Go look at it. Go to a concordance and look for love and and it's just a whole big list there. God loved us in a way that can never be men measured, really. When He gave us Christ, His Son, the full extent of His love was on display on that cross. That knowledge. Of how much God loved you. We talked about this last week the pursuit of knowing God. The more you know Him, there is only one right response, and that is to love Him. Love Him. Love Him back with all your heart, your soul, your mind. In his strength. That is the only right response to what He has done. And again, we don't express this love in in just words. The evidence of the love is in our obedience. The evidence of our love for God is in our obedience to God. Not in obedience to the rules like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else It's obedience in loving God. Pursuing after Him with everything within us. author said the greatest command of loving God with everything you've got means that we've got to be willing to follow our freely chosen master to whom we give total and complete allegiance, attention and adoration when the command to love God this way was first given it was surrounded by a context that demanded obedience obedience It's the same thing today. This love comes from God. As much as we work it out, He works in us. When we pursue, and this was my thing last week, When we pursue a knowledge for God, somehow it creates in us a desire to be more like God. Our responsibility is to know Him. Our response is to love Him. That almost... Defines a Christian walk, what a Christian walk should look like. Are you being faithful to that call? So I'll stand to her feet at this time and I challenge you with this. You challenge me too. Do I pursue a knowledge of God with all my heart? my soul, my mind and my strength and at the same time do I respond in love for God with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul and with all my strength you can keep up the pretenses like the Pharisees did, for them it was all about outward appearances and what people thought and what people would say but what he was looking for was not knowledge knowledge but a genuine love for God let's just reflect on that a few minutes